Welcome back. Cut the foo-foo. Episode 7, part 2, with my mom. In part 2, we continue our conversation into the realms of unschooling, child-led learning, haiku, and qigong. So, here it is. Let's get into it. So, you realize that everything that's going on is not it. Like, and you realize that partly because of um, the way you were raised. So you're listening to yourself in a way that, you know, you were kind of taught from early on. And things start to go awry physically you know you're having physical symptoms like this isn't it and as soon as you make the decision to drop out it's like the clouds kind of part but then you realize that what you realize is that you made the right decision but you don't (laughs) know really what the answer is still but you're so familiar with now or that was such a big moment of solidifying your faith or your trust in in that intuition or in that voice within realizing then that like the scripture thing which some people can not understand because it sounds too churchy of like seek first the kingdom of god and everything else will follow is seek first knowing who you are from who you are not, and everything else takes care of itself. And if you don't do that, you're going to get really violently ill and like die a painful death because you're not listening to your soul. And nobody cares about you and how well you do that because it's just between you and your soul. Like as the... It's not Rumi, but Hafiz or whatever the Sufi poet says, um, like you're ch- it's your checkmate with God, but God is you, and that's just what you're up against. So you proceed from there to then being like, well, I have to trust, like this is real, <laughs> like I have to I have to follow this, but it's really subtle and it's the unknown. So you're not following something that you know, you're following this thread that comes out of trusting what you don't know. So you know that you don't know anything, and that's the kind of the place that you're starting from, and you know that that's a good place to be, even though most people would be like, you should go to community college or, you know, you got to fall back on something, but you're like, well, I don't have to fall back on anything. This is right where I need to be. So you also know that what everybody else is doing is their business and it's just between you and you and of course dad. And you also know that you want to have kids. So this is the segue to then you end up moving to Ohio and having a family and unschooling us. And so I want to, I want you to talk a little bit about unschooling and not so much the decision, what made you decide to do that? Cause I think that's potentially obvious. Um, so I guess if I, to ask a question in there, it's like, how 
we've talked about what we've talked about. And so how did unschooling, um, how did unschooling continue? How was that what you actually needed? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I guess to double up the question is like, what, what was, what continued to be your fear and doubt and how did unschooling ultimately like confront that fear and doubt by leaning into it and letting it be the way it was without trying to change it? Okay. Go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh. (laughs) Your turn to talk. Say something. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) Okay. Read a Mary, Mary, read a Mary Oliver poem Oliver. for Christ's sake. <laughs> so unschooling and how that fits into all of this. Yeah. Uh, well, I had one more thought about yeah. it's like searching for this thing that we were searching for out in the you know seminary, Koinonia, and then um, this little community in Ohio. We realized that um, a lot of the folks. Who that we came into contact with were in the process of sort of unchurching themselves, mm-hmm. of unlearning because they had been raised in mostly Baptist or you know more strict fundamental. Some of them were raised in fundamentalist homes, and so um, these were people that realized, hey, this is not it, and so. Um, they are wrestling with that, with their upbringing in, in that type of a church situation. And, and I realized, you know, your dad and I avoided that, you know, our, cause we were coming from this retreat background. And so we had, we didn't have to go through that process, you know? Well, and so would you say seminary in a way, like a lot of people that were in seminary, or in the circles that you naturally would be in, they were kind of working things out for themselves yeah. that you weren't, you weren't as knotted up there. So right. it wasn't, it wasn't a good fit. You weren't able to connect over that yeah. or to support each other. We, in that. we connected over a lot of things. And again, we were, our main group of friends were friends that we made through our peacemaking efforts, our social justice types of things. And, I mean, our good friends weren't in seminary weren't as knotted up as as others were there, but the, but it was still still an issue. But the the sort of contemplative focus that we were coming from, you know, um, it just it just made it smoother for us. We had one friend who said there should be a 12-step group for recovering fundamentalists, and he was dead serious. You know, he was actually a therapist himself. Um, and I don't, so I don't even understand what all he means by that. But, but that, that's one way of saying, you know, if you're looking for this type of a, a life within a Christian church situation, that's maybe why you're not finding it. Because, and I, you know, I talk, I'm a Christian, but I'm not, that's, 
that's what has worked for me, but I know that Christianity isn't the only way, that there's this stream of wisdom that runs through, you know, Taoism and and everything, Zen, and those are things I've explored some as well, but um, I just see the commonalities. I don't see the differences, you know, I, I and whether it's Catholic or Protestant, I'm not, I don't have that because I was in this coming from this ecumenical place. But so the way that the thing that that has to do with with our unschooling is one of the one of the things that we saw as a drawback from that retreat background that we came up in, it was focused on adults. And the thing that my parents didn't do well was bring us as children into it. And and my brothers, actually, I think they have some resentment for the amount of time my parents spent, you know, going on these retreats and whatever. So, so, so in some ways, your dad and I, it's like, well, we, we haven't found this much in the world. Um, and we are really curious about how how children can benefit from this. So we'll just experiment on our children (laughs) we'll create our own little community and we used to talk about it you know it's like we'll have this monastic family life um and not that we did that but you know i don't then came freaking (laughs) frank you know we read tick not han do you guys you remember Mm -hmm. eating this cookie the cookie of your childhood and talking to the hairs on your head, smiling to the hairs on your head. And um, (laughs) so, and this whole idea of unchurching yourself or unschooling yourself, unlearning, we realized that even though we had had the retreats to go on as young adults, part of that process was uh, unlearning a lot of things that we had learned and, you know, that you learn in school and whatever to climb the ladder and, and, and all of that. So we thought that, um, and we didn't start out, we didn't have that word unschooling, just homeschooling. And we both, you know, my, my undergraduate degree was in education. I was going to be a high school English teacher. So I went through, I've, I'm educated as an educator. And then your dad and I both worked with children after school and before school. And we saw how these children... You know, they would go. They would come here before school and have their breakfast. Then they would go to school, and then they would come back after school, and then they would go home, do their homework, you know, eat their supper, go to bed, and do it all over again. And we saw these children as being kind of just pushed around, and some of them were angry, you know. And so for us, it was a um, the first thing we promised. I was gonna. After I, you know, dropped out of seminary and you and Gabe were born, I thought eventually I would go back to work and teach, you know. So I'll be at home with the kids in the summer and they can just play all summer, you know. That was our first thing. We promised each other that our children would be able to just run around in the summertime (laughs) and be free. And then I started reading Mothering Magazine and... And some of these people who uh, talked about homeschooling, and I had never even heard, why would you do that? Why would you keep your kids home from school? That's weird. 
But the more I read, the more it clicked with with what we wanted for ourselves and and with our peace and justice background, we finally looked at each other one day. It's like, if we can't create peace and shalom and justice for our own children, how can we do that for anybody else in the world, you know? And and there was one book that we read, Better Late Than Early, um, about delaying education, formal education. And so, you know, the first thing was we decided not to send Gabe to, to kindergarten, and, and we were just going to play it by ear, and here we are today, <laughs> um, having raised all three of you without the benefit of school. Um, and it's not that we're... a I mean, because your dad works in the, you know, he substitute teaches and he does tutoring and some of my best friends are teachers. I think teachers are awesome people. They're creative and energetic and they want to do good things for kids. But, and it's it's a decision that everybody has to make for themselves. But it just, for us to send you guys to school where you would sit all day listening to this outward authority of someone, a teacher or whoever who's giving you assignments, the textbooks, all day long you're doing something that someone else wants you to do. And that's how I felt in seminary. And there was no time for me to listen to myself, um, to connect with myself and my own inner authority. And we wanted we wanted you and your brother's to have that inner authority. And we wanted you to not have to unlearn a bunch of stuff. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's just, it sort of, it sort of evolved. Um, and I mean, one thing about, uns, you know, people, some people have a problem with that term unschooling. And an, an alternative term is child-led learning. And that's, that's definitely what we did. But but the the books that we read, the people who were advocating this, like John Holt and John Taylor Gatto, and um, they were educators themselves. They were coming at it from the inside and seeing. You know, John Holt wrote a book. His first book was How Children Fail, and how the school system fails children. And then he wrote a book, How Children Learn, and children learn best by. I mean, it's just like if you, I mean, I've dealt with adults in educational where I've provided an in-service, you know, at the library where I work, and they complain, their common complaint is having to sit and listen to someone talk all day. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, well, that's what we expect our kids to do. Um, And so, you know, we ended up just not sending you to school. And the the priorities for us were that you get to spend as much time outside as possible, roaming in the woods, um, playing with your dogs. And the other the other thing was just reading, filling your heads with myth and story. And there's a quote attributed to Einstein and. And I've heard 
more recently that he didn't actually say that, but the, it goes, if you want your children to be smart, read them fairy tales. And if you want them to be even smarter, read them more fairy tales. Um, so Einstein didn't say that, or maybe not in those words, but Einstein did say imagination is more important than knowledge. Because if you can't imagine something, you know, you can't, you can't create it. Mm-hmm. And so we just wanted to fill your guys' heads with, you know, your, your heads were full of Harry Potter and Luke Skywalker. And not that you're living in an imaginary world, because in, in, in what really counts, that's the real world, you know? Huh? Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter. <laughs> Harry Potter is the real world. And now... You know, maybe the highest compliment. Well, so you were asking what, what, how have I resisted that, and how has unschooling my children? Yeah, how has that been what me? you needed? Um, well, because I was so good at school, and it and it was so easy for me to just stop there. Like I said, you know, I'll just I'll get this degree that will define me, and I don't have to, I don't have to go so any having, further. Yeah, because you and dad were both so good at school. It was almost like, well, we know that. And so on a personal level, it's like to send our kids to school is like, well, we can help them do their homework or whatever. But like, it's actually kind of boring or because, you know, going back to how we started of like realizing that everything starts from the inside and your relationship with yourself and having an authority, like there needs to be an authority. Like a child is completely helpless and dependent on an authority, but only that has to be within the context of like the nurturing nature of the parents and they need to be encouraged to, decide for themselves and take responsibility for themselves and have consequences that aren't getting, not acting out of fear of, I mean, cause I never went to school, but I can only imagine like whatever consequence at school, it's like, it's not just a consequence. It's like, well, what is everyone else going to think? And there's all this shame, like you're kind of on public display and they're not able to, um, it's not set up to teach them how to have a relationship with themselves or to know how they're feeling and what that might actually mean. And that's kind of the most important thing because, like, I was just reading something recently, like signs that you're um, learning to trust yourself, you know, because nobody can trust themselves and they're, you know, they're upset with that media outlet and they're triggered by these people saying this other thing and it's all political and stuff and everybody's upset. And this is one of the symptoms or one of the signs that you're starting to trust yourself is that you don't get upset and start to freak out when somebody says something you don't agree with because you know yourself and have a relationship to distinguishing between your intuition and your anger and knowing what's what. So for you guys, that was so crucial that you wanted your kids 
to start on that foot. And it started with like, well, we just won't send them to kindergarten. And then it just, it never became, it never sounded like good news to send us to school because what was happening was working, but it wasn't working of like, oh, they're amazing. And like, they're so good at math and they're only three (laughs) or whatever. It's working like, no, they're doing what, they need to be doing to learn what they're learning right now. And so are you and it's messy and frustrating and like not at all what we think of as like being spiritual or um, even preferable, you know, because it's all super um, like annoying and, sleep deprived (laughs) stuff. Well, and early on I did, I thought, I remember talking to this mom who homeschooled that she was visiting at Koinonia and she did basically school at home where they had desks and they had, you know, math and then they had literature and they, you know, they went through the curriculum and said the Pledge of Allegiance. And I, you know, I loved school. I loved to play school. I used to make my brothers play school with me, and I and I. That's what I envisioned from the beginning that that I would have you guys sitting in desks and we would go through you know books, textbooks, and whatever. Um, but it's interesting. So the unschooling process is it's unschooling the parent as much. I mean, because you've never right. been to school. Well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, and so it's. It's all of those ways that I had succeeded and all of those ways, because for me, what people think about me is a very important, you know, and it's hard for me to disappoint people or, um, and even though I have this really strong counterculture way of being in the world, I also, I mean, to look at me, you wouldn't, I mean, I'm a librarian and <laughs> I don't. You know, I try to also blend in, you know. Uh, but anyway, you guys, it's like if you take away all the trappings of school, like the threat of the principal's office or the threat of failing, you know, making a B or making a D or whatever, the, that whole s- structure with the, the grades and everything, a lot of the schooling day is like crowd control <laughs> and... And punishment and reward. And if you take that away, there's nothing, and I, and I, I didn't want, I didn't, you know, that's the part of school I didn't want to bring into my home. It's like the rest, it's like, I don't know, to get kids to learn math just for the sake of learning math. And they, they just look at you like, well, it's like somebody taking... (laughs) It's like somebody taking wanting to learn a musical instrument and then like to cl- take classical piano lessons and you know at the yeah. very best they're glad they did that eventually because at some point they got on the track of playing music the way they wanted to and then they yeah, can see that as they can integrate it yeah. but if you just make somebody or tell somebody this is how it is and you have to learn all this stuff it's only interesting the kids only going to want to learn it you know, obviously, if it's awesome, because it's connected to something that they actually like. And that's why when we talk about child-led learning, and along with that goes 
it's an after the fact curriculum. So instead of, and that's one of the books that I read, Raymond Moore, who was, he had a PhD in education. Mm -hmm. He was a teacher, a principal, a superintendent, and he's like, no, (laughs) keep your kids home from school as long as possible. He was like the grandfather of the homeschooling movement. He and his wife legislated for for families to be able to have that option. Um, He was like, do not buy a curriculum because then you're going to get locked. You're going to waste your money because you don't know ahead of time if this is something that suits your child's personality or their interests or whatever. And so they they came up with this idea of an after-the-fact curriculum where, you know, you like so you guys were so into animals you know and you learned all these different kinds of animals and and i remember michael having this whole living room floor covered with books of at the atlas and the animal books and then his animal figures and he's looking at you know where in the world wolves live and where you know you were into all those quaddies and animals I never even knew where where you know it's so like you're teaching yourself geography and you're teaching yourself uh the the main way Gabe learned how to read was um wanting wanting to read the baseball scores you know in the newspaper and wanting to read his baseball cards without having to have us read those to him and so um you don't you don't impose the curriculum on the child you are there with the child and you help them get the materials they need and then after it's all and you can guide them you know and and bring in more of what they're interested in and then you write it up afterwards and you say, oh, well, we, this was history and this was math and this was, mm-hmm. you this know, was whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that fit. Yeah. <laughs> Extra credit. So you, you as, the, as the, the facilitator, I always thought of myself as a facilitator rather than a teacher. I'm, I'm putting it in school terms, you know, because you, we, we, we followed all the rules. We reported to the school system every year. You have to in- state your intent to homeschool, and then you you give them an outline of what you've done. And, you know, we crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, and I put it in a package that fit into that school model. So, and that's, that's a, sort of the fallacy of unschooling is that children are totally, they're just totally uneducated. It's it's no. It's more the way that you're educated. I always like to use it to just to freak people out. <laughs> what unschooling? Unschooling. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a trigger yeah. for for some people, and and you don't maybe cover all the bases. But one of the watchwords of unschooling is children will learn what they need to learn when they need to learn it. So it may not follow the prescribed structure, but it's like Michael, when he started working construction, he's like, wow, I wish I'd, you know, wish I'd learned more math. Well, and I said to him, this is, so this is the time for you to learn math, you know? And, um, 
So yeah, it's child led and it's, but as a mother, I was constantly freaking out. (laughs) (laughs) And if I hadn't had my good friend, Nancy, you know, who I, you know, I just happened to find in this part of Ohio, a small group of other moms and kids who are also unschooling. And, you know, Nancy and I clicked from the very beginning. We raised you guys all together. And we would literally, you know, at the beginning of the school year, come September, late August, we'd talk each other down, step away from the workbook. <laughs> you know, because you want, you want that tangible, you want to be able to see, you know, that your kids are making it. Well, all you have to do is just look. And we would constantly like, well, just look at, look at them. You know, look at what they can do. Look at what they're doing together. And now that you've all grown, and and the whole time I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if this is going to work. But, um, and I never, and so I never talked about it. I never bragged or I never said, oh, we unschool our kids or even we homeschool our kids. I just chose not to talk about. I mean, people knew that we were um, homeschooling, but like the way that we homeschooled and other other parents would say, well, I just couldn't do that. Like, how do you make them do their spelling? How do you make them? I couldn't make my kid take a test. And it's like, you just smile and nod. <laughs> yeah. Well, so that's the, I guess what I'm wanting to highlight is like, the since there's not a path, right. the path is going into the unknown. Like that's how you know you're on the path. Mm-hmm. And the path, if you were to try to define it, is like essentially just you stay on it as long as you're willing to continue to, you know, have the wave crash over you, mm-hmm. knowing that the cycles of it dictate that then you'll come up for air. So, and then, and then the way the, the way that actually plays out is at no point do you ever actually even want that cycle to stop because as soon as it stops, you're dead. Like either because you actually died and aren't going to reincarnate or whatever it is. (laughs) And you know, you're, you like got an A and you get to, not you don't have to come back anymore <laughs> or whatever <laughs> but also because if you're still alive and you stop to go through that cycle you stop actually being you know present and excited and wanting to do the things that light you up in the way that kids you know exude that type of curiosity and stuff and then they it slowly gets snuffed out So it's a no-brainer, obviously, that you guys ended up wanting to do that because that was not only what ended up being what on the inside you knew to be the more in-touch way to do it because it's not like I want to be really specific about what I have experienced is all of the things that all of the systems that maybe are not ideal serve a very important purpose because all of the people and all of us that are going through those systems 
they have to not work in order for, and we have to go through, and we have to suffer from them not working in order to then know that that doesn't work. So that's another part of the path that like, there's no like school, somebody that goes to school is not, did not miss, miss the boat, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. it's just a different lesson. And so that's what I'm then also wanting to zero in on how like I've, I've suffered slash struggled because of being unschooled in ways that I've been able to benefit, see the value of. And I know if I would have gone to school, it just would have been a whole other selection of things that I would have gone through that I would have also probably obviously overcame or, you know, dealt with, but I'm really grateful for, the struggles being what they were because I've gotten the feedback that like seeing Herman last night, my roommate in college, he said that when we were freshmen in college, he remembers, and I wish I would have asked him how, how did I act that was different? But he knew that I was homeschooled and he had the observation like of being, you know, we were both 19 and as, him being a 19-year-old who went to school being roommates with me, he was like, wow, he really benefited from this. Mm-hmm. you know." And we were joking about some of the people we knew that freshman year that were really hard to, ended up being hard to deal with or whatever. <laughs> you know, so kind of joking about it. But so I was like, well, I didn't know that. Like I was just living my life and it was scary and hard and I'd never been to school before and, you know, whatever traumatic experience that that (laughs) was, you know, Herman really is like that kind of invoked something in him of like, wow, you know, and now he's got a kid, another one on the way and is, has, you know, is making these decisions for himself and all that. So anyways, that's to say that what you, um, what your life path was and is continuing to be unschooling us was for your, was what you needed in terms of what you were working on just as much as it was for our sake. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that is maybe misunderstood because I've been confused by it or something, but like it's not selfish like you need that. Like everything's so interconnected. Like your brother dying, you needed that. Like you you benefited from that. Mm-hmm. And you getting ulcers and all the stomach pains and stuff in college, like that was a part of communicating, you know, to listen a little bit more. And then unschooling your kids and all of it, all of the fear or doubt being something that, you know, you could have pulled the plug on to make yourself feel better by sending us to school. Cause at least we'll have gone to school for high school or, or whatever, but you continued to practice what you learned early on, which was, you know, to lean into the pain or to know that just because you're having, you have this, you know, program running that always goes to worry about, is this the right decision or not? You knew that nobody else had, it figured out either. So it would be ridiculous to actually buy in to all of that 
stuff that like I really label as mental because I know for me it only exists when I'm thinking. Um, so, yeah. Well, and one thing, too, that, you know, your dad and I both loved kids, even before we had our own children. I mean, we always had Josh, my littlest brother. He was three when your dad and I started dating, and he always hung out with us, and it was fun. He was a fun person, you know? And then when Kirk died, Josh was only eight, and Josh, because of that dream that he had where he saw Kirk, and he really he really helped me deal with my own grief, you know, that there's, going back to the Bible again, a little child shall lead them. And then when we, when we were in seminary, we signed up to be babysitters. And since we were, we were a couple who babysat together, we got a lot of business. <laughs> you know, people that would go out of the country and leave their children with us. And because hanging out with little kids is just, little kids are really wise. Yeah. And they're fun. And they teach, you know... I I was jealous. I didn't want to send you all to school and let the teacher get to spend all day with you. I brought you into the world. (laughs) Talk about suffering. (laughs) I gave birth to you. I wanted to spend time with you. And I also knew, going back to, you know, our town, that... The time just goes so fast, and before I knew it, I knew that you would be gone, you know. And so I, I guess, you know, for your dad and me, we both, we've always both worked part-time. We've been at home part-time, but our biggest focus was, was our family and was you boys and spending we learned as much from you as a parent, and I and I. That's one of the things I would say to to parents and homeschooling parents in particular. If you're not learning as much from your children, <laughs> you should be learning more from them than they're learning from you. If you think you've got all of this stuff to teach them, just relax. Yeah. Well, and that's <laughs> the other thing that that's so universal that is hard, and it kind of goes in because I want to talk about haiku and. Qigong and things, because there's, it struck me, and this has come up before, I think actually Edge, a little shout out to <laughs> Bono's <laughs> better half, um, did a podcast did with Flea and, the, and Edge, or they were both talking about the the importance of like the limitation, like we're all in a limited situation, like whether it's somebody that has financial limitation or then they're them talking about them being limited because they're getting pretty old and they still suck at music compared to what they, you know, have of this idea of like how much more they still want to do and the possibilities and playing with different like African musicians and just like not knowing rhythm and being like, you know, and, and being so excited all the time because they're always learning and all these other musicians or whatever not you know not being the caliber of musician that they are in terms of their success and then maybe using that as an excuse to be like well i'm not 
if I, if I could make a living doing it, then I would learn from it all the time or whatever. It's like, well, you either do it or you don't. So there is no trial. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the, the importance of like limitation and, you know, changing gears into haiku and even qigong, like moving really slowly and it being, it being the quality of what you're doing over, you know, cause most people do it and it's like, it's too slow or it's too whatever. And same with haiku. Like, I feel like you have this niche where you do things that most people find not fancy or exciting enough and how there's so much what seems obtuse and boring is actually some of the, um, it's like a smaller portal to see through or whatever, but because of that, it goes straight to the heart of it more so than a big, wide, easy access thing is way more fraught with frou-frou. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I guess to kind of move in that direction, talk about haiku and whatnot, but is there anything... Um, where we started, what we've talked about, I'm kind of... I'm, uns- I'm unschooling you in the podcast <laughs> right now. I'm letting you <laughs> lead. <laughs> We'll, we'll figure the structure when. out <laughs> after the fact. Um, well, Qigong and Haiku, my two practices, is, is both of those essentially go back to considering the lilies, you know, that Bible verse, seek first the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, um, which means to me that means uh, the unitive mind. It's the, it can be, uh, one writer says that the kingdom of heaven is a metaphor for a state of consciousness, and it's a non-dual consciousness or unitive consciousness. Um, and, or another way of looking, or another way of saying that is to learning to see with the heart. Um, and it's not in the future, you know, you think of heaven as being somewhere far away, in both time and distance, but Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is within you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here now. And it's not something something you die into. It's something you awaken in. And so both of those practices um, are my way of, uh, like I say, considering the lilies and paying attention to the Mama's sunflowers and clocks ticking and food and coffee and just those normal, ordinary things. Um, so Qigong, which I got into first, uh, I, I got into that because I was trying to figure out how to manage stress. <laughs> and everything I read talked about Qigong. So I got books from the library and DVDs and the, the first Qigong I ever did was that was Chuni Lin, and it, I felt like I'll, like we're just standing here. You know, we're standing here, we're breathing, we're seeing this tunnel of light in our spines, and we're inhaling and our hands are expanding and we're exhaling and our, you know, it's like, this is an exercise, we're just standing here. And it's, it to me, it was really boring. And it's like, I can't, this is, 
this is this is not doing anything. <laughs> and so I I got into more complicated versions of Qigong and I experimented and tried all these different things and I came to Kripalu twice and studied with two different teachers and um and I found one um one form that I really like and I've taught that at the library and people come and go there are some people who come and say this is too slow it's not doing anything and other people come and say wow this is really strenuous <laughs> you know depending on your fitness level um but now I find myself going back to Chuni Lin to this it's basically sort of a standing meditation and um because now I get it in a way after, you know, all these years, I get it in a way that I didn't at the beginning. Um, and it is, it is a way of just relaxing, you know, calming down the nervous system. And um, it's kind of like the whole practice of Qigong is sort of like, you know, in yoga, the that you end with the 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 dead man's mm-hmm. what's that pose, pose. corpse pose awesome. and that's how that's like everything is now going to be metabolized or mm-hmm. you know um, all of this movement and breathing that you've been doing and now we're just going to lay here and let ourselves absorb that and in some way that's the, the Chuni Lin Spring Forest Qigong it's like you're metabolizing your life. Um, but you're also visual, you're using visualization of, um, you know, where the mind goes, the chi flows. We were talking about that earlier. Um, and just learning not to be afraid of non-doing or uh, silence uh, or whatever. Uh, because there's so many ways you can take a practice like that and, and then turn it into, you know, or mindfulness. And you you can turn mindfulness into a big deal. <laughs> uh, or you can turn mindful eating into a diet, you know. Um, but uh, both, you know, Qigong, part of the thing that appeals to me about that is the the uh, imagery you know the nature imagery and the the poetics of it um and you're visualizing you know the five elements and how they play in your body and you're and you're you know touching the water and opening to the sky you're painting a rainbow just all this nature imagery and and you, after you do it for so long, you you start to see yourself as part of nature, not over against nature. I I talk about it in terms of my creatureliness. I see myself as as a creature, you know, a part of creation. In the same way, the haiku happens um, for me. I I see myself as part. Um, part of the whole and it's me observing writing a haiku is me just paying attention 
to what's already there. Um, when I first started writing haiku, I I thought about it's like it's like you know going on a walk in nature and you just notice what shimmers and then uh, and the, and I learned that way back on the retreats. You go out on a hike and you have a question in your mind. And you see what shimmers. Oh, this stone in the creek. And, and you pick it up and you put it in your pocket or you hold it in your hand. And pretty soon that stone has, it becomes a metaphor, you know, of, of whatever it is you're dealing with. Um, and so writing haiku, it's like what shimmers, what attracts me to it? And then what does it have to say to me? Um, when you... When you write haiku, you don't tell the whole story. Um, you don't tell people how to feel. You just present <laughs> a, a haiku moment, you know, that you've had yourself, and then you let them fill in the gaps for themselves. Right, it's haiku. <laughs> well, that's your problem. <laughs> Um, you're just kind of setting, and a, a lot of the the magic of a haiku is you have these maybe two different images, and you just set them beside each other, and there's a gap between them, and then you just you let the reader fill in the gap, and in that way, it's kind of like a cone, you know, K O A N, where um, you have to put aside your intellect. It's like, you know, people, when they read a poem and then they're like, what does that mean? What does this mean? What is this going to, how is this going to help me in my, or what, you know, how can I make money from this? It's like, well, you don't, you don't, you approach it with your, you know, the eye of your heart, not, not the eye of your intellect. Um, well, that's what Zen Cohn's, and that's the obtuseness, like the mind, because the definition of obtuse is like it's something along the lines of like something that's dull and like lacking intelligence. Which I was, I thought it was just something that was like mysterious or something, but it was like actually kind of a judgmental thing. I thought, and then realizing that that's a really good example, like haiku and is, is obviously very zen and what is so wise about things that are obtuse and wise in Cohen's and um, haiku or is what it is. And another purpose of it or one aspect of it is the intellect doesn't know what to do with it because it's not speaking the intellect's language. So most people, again, it's like haiku, they want to write a book, like they want to figure out the thing. They want to philosophize they're not satisfied or it's too simple or boring like or they to do haiku or they want to train to do something and get a medal for it or and just moving really slowly and letting there be nothing feels like the opposite of anything you'd ever want to do so that's just to say that like those two things kind of epitomize what we're talking about and in Krishnamurti's way of saying it's like the only way to actually know anything is to not be carrying around all of yesterday and the day before 
because you have to know things based off of as they are, like in a haiku moment. Yeah. But you mm-hmm. can't experience the haiku moment. You can't experience reality if you have all of this, if you're collecting all of your life's experiences because, you know, if I ask you a question like what is um, any question at all, you're going to answer it either really quickly because based off of the experiences you've had with it or you're not going to know the answer because you've never had an experience. And that's not knowing something. That's having a database of things that are not happening right now and, you know, that's not connected. Well, and letting something be as it is, that's an important, really important aspect of, of both Qigong and haiku, you know, in, in my Qigong classes, I, I'm always saying, just notice what you notice. Notice how your body feels. Don't try to change it, you know. And the, the yin and yang symbol of darkness and light, you know, hard and soft, male and female, all of those opposites, You ha- both are fine, both are okay, and it's bringing those together um, to, to uh, you know, bring about the wholeness. And with haiku, the, one of the first books I read um, about haiku was written by Clark Strand. It's called Seeds from a Birch Tree. And he says in that book, you know, if you write a haiku about birch seeds scattered on the floor in this church was this the scenario, and there's all of these monuments, you know, um, statues of Mary and Jesus and whatever, and then scattered amongst these. It's like the wind blew these birch seeds into this church. And he's like, the birch seeds don't represent anything. Like, you know, we metaphor and simile and poetry and symbolism and all that where one thing represents a, something deeper. Like in a haiku, that's not true. The birch seeds are just birch seeds. But the birch seeds themselves are holy. And, and just noticing the birch seeds on the floor is your job. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, I'm just now thinking about this, but that's the way ultimately, you know, in my unschooling uh, or in my homeschooling or just in parenting, you know, it doesn't matter if you send your kids to school or keep them at home or whatever, parents just worry about their kids and we worry about different things for different reasons. But ultimately for me, it, it, it always came back to just, you know, just paying attention to you and and I might be, you know, I might be, there might be a part of me that's saying, oh my gosh, you know, Daniel doesn't know how to read yet. Is he ever going to learn how to read? And how is this going to ruin him, you know? And, and then I would do the Katie Byron thing of, you know, what is that? How do you feel when you think, oh, Daniel should know how to read? What makes me feel really anxious? Well, how do you feel if you don't have that thought? Well, it's just this relaxing of, you know, that's just my 
my construct being placed on you. But when I can let go of that, then I can just relate to you as a human being and as my son. And it's like all these awesome things that you can do, you know. Still can't read, by the way. (laughs) For the listeners out there, I'm 30. (laughs) No, I know that you can read. And that Nancy and I, we talk about that out of our seven children. I told you this the other day. We'll say, see, they're potty trained. They can all read. They all have their driver's license. (laughs) And nobody's living in our basement. (laughs) Success. (laughs) Um, but But just... you know, bringing, it's like all of this, all of these thoughts that you can have that come from, you know, what you've learned out there in the world, just to be able to let that go and just look at that child and connect with that child and be with that child. Um, one of the One of the books that really helped us in raising you guys is How to Talk So Kids will listen and how to listen so kids can talk and just practicing that I I can remember that with you especially like you know you're mad at Gabe about something or other and and just listening to you and I would like feed you back things that you had just said to me and then you take it on until you finally figured out the problem for yourself you know and you didn't need me to say well Daniel if you just you know (laughs) Um, he's a big brother, and sometimes big brothers are like that. And, you know, sometimes you make him, you know, I didn't have to, I, not that I didn't do that. Yeah. Um, but there were those moments when I could just, you know, bring my attention back um, and kind of check out from all of those other things. Again, just coming back to the moment that you're in right now and not projecting out to the future. Or regretting the past, um, and having—I mean, because that's—it's like it's the the process is simple, meaning that to always be letting go of what was and going into the unknown, and you know, it leaning into the pain. Like that's the thing that's so tricky is the mind. And this is what I've talked a lot about in previous podcasts because in a way it's like if people don't have a direct experience of this, then whether it's Byron Katie or Breathwork or anything, I mean, I just say those two things because you just mentioned her and obviously I do Breathwork, but if you don't have the knowing of how you are going to feel... um, terrified I mean you know then there's all those charts of like your comfort zone and then where growth happens or your yeah so um, to have a relationship with yourself that knows that so it's not about even following your intuition or even focusing on your resistance because all of that's just another pattern of saying I should face my resistance because, and so then that's setting you up to fail because if you don't do it or if you don't do it the way you feel like you should, then you feel bad about it. And you know, like it's all a giant trap and the only way forward is to be 
is to notice the lilies, you know, and just, and to stop that process. And at first, when you stop that process, all of this stuff starts to come up because we've been avoiding all of that for so long and it's, and it's, it's so pressurized. And so at first there can be this huge moment of like crisis, like you had, you know, your life changes. Like there's, I remember these articles, like how yoga ruined my life and all these things around talking about that. Like when you start to actually pay attention and accept what things are actually asking of you from your soul, then all of the stuff that you forced into existence has to potentially be really chaotically torn apart. And then you're in court with your ex-wife or whatever. And it's like, well, (laughs) this isn't spiritual work. And it's like, well, yeah, it is like you have to reckon with everything you created out of fear and disconnect from trusting yourself. And now that you're doing that, you, there's a backlog of the consequences, but it's not to be seen as like, Oh, and now I have all this work to do because it's not a, it's not that those things are bad or even unenjoyable because that's, that's what it is. That's your life. And that's what spiritual work is. And in that opportunity, that is an opportunity, but feels like a giant pain in the ass is the resistance to it which is where the suffering lives because if you can let it just be without trying to change it, it instantly changes. And that's what you said something a second ago of witnessing it, reading the haiku or having writing the haiku, reading the haiku, noticing something for what it is without any need to do anything about it because quantum physics matter acts differently based off of what we think about it. Mm-hmm. So it's not woo-woo. It's not uh, weird. It's like, it's like, this is physics. Um, and that's so true of children, you know. Yeah, all right, and dogs. Like, like, yeah. you're a bad dog. He's like, I'm going to chew your other hose up, too. <laughs> One thing I thought about when when we were talking about doing this was, and you just were saying into the unknown, it, it reminded me, one of the things your dad and I wanted for you boys was to do some type of a quest or a, uh, uh, rite of initiation, huh? a rite of passage, yeah. But it was, we never could think of anything or it just, it wasn't an organic process because there was no, nobody else was doing it, and it just felt like it would have been sort of a false thing that we imposed yeah. another, you know. But it's interesting how all three of you have done that for yourselves in different ways, and, you know, Gabe with his running, and um, Michael with his hiking the Appalachian Trail, and you, with your going off to Kripalu, where you didn't know anybody, and and all the experiences that you've had, and the, even the breath work is to me, every time I do effigy, it's like a rite of passage, <laughs> almost. But they're all you guys have challenged yourselves in different ways, mm-hmm. and you've gone into the unknown, and you've had to 
rely on your own inner authority, your own resources, um, and whatever. And I was, um, Gabe, you know, being the father of these two little girls, and that brings in the all of the Disney princesses. <laughs> and I was thinking how, you know, this idea of listening to your inner voice is, it's not, it's not that we don't value that as a culture because it's, it's in all those Disney movies. All of these princesses, their ob- objective is to learn to listen to themselves and to break out of the mold that has been cast for them. Um, so we do va- we do place a value on it, but it's like, well, how far, you know, put your money where your mouth is, is basically what it comes down to. But that all just to say that that Into the Unknown, that song from Frozen 2, and when Gabe was doing his one of his races during COVID here, doing these laps all through the night, the Last Man Standing event, and we had music playing, and and part of it was the soundtrack <laughs> from Frozen Two, and he loves that song <laughs> "Into the Unknown," <laughs> and it was starting to get on your dad's nerves, <laughs> and he turned it off because Gabe had come in, and you know it's like we got to do the gels and got to do this and that and the other thing. It's all kind of hectic, so your dad either turned the music off or turned it way down, and Gabe's like, "Don't turn that down." <laughs> And we, we had made posters, you know, along to put them on the trees that he would see into the unknown, um, you know, but that's, yeah. it's just been fun to watch you guys. And, and again, it's like we've just enjoyed you so much and we've learned so much. You know, you guys have brought so much into our lives that we didn't know. I mean, just like your music and and running and baseball and Michael's poetry and all of these things that um, we would have never done if if you hadn't led us along, you know, the little child shall lead them. And also how I can I can look at each of you and see how um, you know with you it's this commonality of of spirituality and inner work and Shen Yi and Qigong, you know, this sort of overlap that we can talk about and get excited about. And with Gabe, you know, building his cordwood house, I used to look at books about how to build a cordwood house. And I've never, I've never said that out loud to him, but you know, you grew up with cordwood books laying around. (laughs) It wasn't original that idea wasn't <laughs> yeah. original with you you just have the capability to actually carry it out and then Michael and his poetry you know that's, that's something in literature that I can um, and so it, it's kind of fun because you know like I said earlier your dad and I have always looked for this community of of like-minded people <laughs> And we found it in in so many of our friends, but to have it within our own family, and now to be seeing, to see it happening, you know, with the next generation too of uh, Aspen and Willow. So um, I don't know that there's 
any one point at which you can look at your life and say, oh, I was successful, but I am getting to the point now in my life where I can say, oh, well, it must have worked. (laughs) Just from the the feedback that I get from you guys and the fact that Gabe and Heather have decided to continue the homeschooling with the next generation and um, to, for us to sit here and have this conversation. and It's very gratifying. <laughs> well, do you want to take us out with a haiku? Oh, well, okay. Or something like that? Yeah. Master of Divinity. <laughs> So, um, in terms of haiku and qigong, I will. Can I plug my little book? Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, plug yourself. So I have a, a a book that I co-wrote with my friend Robin Mullet. It's a chat book. It's called The Curve of Her Arm. It's a collection of haiku that I wrote and uh, free verse poems that Robin wrote, and they're all on the subject of qigong and tai chi. So Robin comes to my Qigong class uh, through the library, and at some point I discovered that she was really taking this to heart. She was writing poetry about her experiences. Um, and, and then I had a collection of Qigong that I had written, um, mainly from an ex- that retreat that I came to at Kripalu with Deborah Davis, um, Qigong for Women, uh, I started writing haiku that weekend about Qigong. Um, and this was published for us by Diane Borsnick at Night Ballet Press in Cleveland. Um, so uh, I have this book, and it's I have a little website, www, you have to include that, dot hollyrainwater.com. And if you go to that, you can um, see where this book is available. You can also read um, some of my haiku. But I'm going to share a couple, since we've been talking about family and... Um, oh, shucks, I had them pulled out here. Now I don't see them. One is Holly with an I. Holly with an I. H-O-L-L-I. Rainwater. Um, I had uh, some haiku included in an anthology called Another Trip Around the Sun. It's a collection of haiku for children. Uh, And some of those were about you guys. Oh, I can't find the ones I was going to actually share. Well, so I'll share a couple. Let me just share a couple from the book. So this is, this is about, um, the ones that I wrote are about women doing Qigong. And, it, and, the, and so there's a great strength that I've, that I've gotten from seeing myself, as I was saying earlier, as a creature and seeing the power that I have when I see myself that way um, as a part of this universe. So I'll just read a couple of these haiku. Tree stance. A woman's feet firmly planted. Searching tiger. 
A woman narrows her gaze. Painting a rainbow, the curve of her arm. And I want to share one. Let me find it in the book. This is a, a sort of a haiku series. Um, hang on just a second. It's called Turning Toward the Moon. And, of course, the fact that these haiku are based on Qigong movement, um, I have done workshops where I actually teach the movement and the haiku that you can do it together. And I, I taught this one at a, it was a gathering of haiku poets. Um, and even though it's written for women, there were several men who came to that workshop and, and even came back the, the next day when I did it again. Turning toward the moon. Evening sky, women with their heads full of stars. Big Dipper turning her arm longer than it is. One hundred days, the constellations beneath a woman's feet. Turning toward the moon, women's bodies waxing and waning. Earth and heaven, the length of her spine. Plucking stars, a subtle shift in the tide. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Daniel. All right, this concludes season seven. (laughs) All right, thanks for listening. This concludes season seven of episode one. No, but seriously, this concludes episode, part two of episode seven. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes, go back and check them out. Subscribe, like, comment, share. Go to rainwaterbreathworks.com for a free consultation with me. And good luck to you on your path, wherever you're going, knowing that the path is pathless. It's up to you to figure it out. I hope this conversation with my mother was interesting, inspiring, and or helpful, thought-provoking. I really enjoyed doing it, making it, editing it, and creating it. If you want to know more about my mom, you can go to holly, holly with an I, rainwater.com. And I believe all of her haiku stuff is there. So, yeah, thanks to my mom for joining me in doing this, and thanks to you for listening. Stay tuned for episode eight. It's going to be awesome.